Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and pray now that you would help us to hear it, read, mark, learn and inwardly digest it. That by the patience and comfort of your word, we may ever grow into your people, loving and serving you in all ways. Help us this night, Father, to understand this part of your word, that we might understand your great mystery of godliness. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a pleasure and a privilege to be back here in Cambridge and in our home at Cambridge, namely this church. Here, though, tonight, uh, I want to tell you about a great mystery. It's not great because it's greatly mysterious, but it's great because of the truth that it conveys. It's amazing how people don't know this mystery. Astonishing that it seems to be kept from their eyes. They just don't get it. They see it, but they don't see it. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which actually is on the top of your outline here. If you want to follow it there, you can just there. It's that one verse I'm going to be speaking on, or if you want to look it up in your Bibles, it's uh, on page uh, 1192. God called it the mystery of godliness. Our translators try to help us understand it by translating it as the mystery from which true godliness springs. But the phrase is simply the mystery of godliness. Not the mystery of goodliness, but the mystery of godliness. And we can find God's explanation of it in the rest of the verse. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by the angels, preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. And it doesn't sound all that very mysterious, does it? But then again, that's the problem with this mystery. Until you see what it's saying, it remains a mystery. But once you understand it, it becomes something great beyond all question. This evening, then, when we're talking of the mystery of godliness, let me ask you, when is a mystery not a mystery? When is a mystery not a mystery? And the answer is, it's not a mystery when it's been solved. Then it's no longer a mystery. That is, the New Testament uses the word mystery not to mean mysterious, difficult to understand beyond explanation, enigmatic, continuing eternally as unresolvable, but a much simpler concept, secret. In fact, you could translate the word secret and you wouldn't be wrong. Indeed, the word mystery is a transliteration of the Greek letters rather than a translation of its meaning. It's a secret. Something hidden, but now made clear. Something people couldn't guess, but now have been told. See, I've got a secret. Actually, like all of us, I've got lots of secrets, but I've got a secret. Here's my secret. There's something in my right-hand pocket. And you don't know what it is. You, you could guess, but you don't know. Not until I tell you that is. 
then you'd know my secret, wouldn't you? Uh, your guess might be right. I have keys in my right-hand pocket. Your guess could be completely wrong. I have a handkerchief in my right-hand pocket. Actually, I've got little preaching jubes in my right-hand pocket. Hands up those who guessed that. Well, you see, it was a secret, wasn't it? But it's not a secret anymore, is it? Because now you know. Did you want to know? <laughs> yes, because if I hadn't told you, you would have spent all night sitting there thinking, I wonder what he's in right-hand pocket. Yeah. Listen to what I'm saying, not guessing about that. See, my secret, frankly, is not very great. It's not great because you could easily guess it. Well, possibly. It's not great because, frankly, I'm so unimportant. And who cares what's in my pocket? And who cares about my preaching jubes? And what's it matter what I have, that I have keys there as well? But God's mystery is very great. Great beyond question. Not because it's so mysterious and strange and difficult to understand, although his secret to godliness is strange and unexpected, but God's mystery is very great because God is important and because God's secret is very important and because godliness is so very important because the way of godliness is very, very important and actually affects every part of life. So this is an important secret. So tonight I want to share with you God's great secret of godliness. And there are six clues to that secret. Uh, these days we're often given numbers for things, aren't we? When we're really bored out of our brains and go on Googling things. You know, ten steps to lose weight, nine ways to entertain the in-laws, eight fashion disasters to avoid, seven hints to cleaning your kitchen, and now I'm giving you six clues to godliness. No. There's six great truths that when you understand them, when they control your life, you will find the godliness that God himself has provided. Here they are in the Bible, in the verse I already read. He appeared in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You see now why it's called a secret, a mystery? Because now that I've read it, you still don't know what it's about, do you? The secret's kept from people not understood by outsiders, and simply not what even Christians expect, is it? But you should expect it. You see, in this secret to godliness, there are no rules to keep. There are no steps to follow. There are no habits to form. There are no activities to engage in. There are no clubs to join. There's no fees to pay. There's no key performance indicators to achieve. It's a secret for most people because we have completely the wrong understanding of what godliness is, what it involves, and what's the key to it. The Greek word godliness that we translate is really a word meaning religion. We don't like that word. Uh, many years ago, the Americans uh, produced a wonderful book called How to Be Religious, How to Be Christian Without Being Religious. We don't like religion as a word, but it is the word religion. It's the respect that you give to your God. Uh, piety might be a better word. Devotion might be a better word. Reverence might be a better word. Because Christian religion involves morality rather than ritual, 
service rather than worship, uh, obedience rather than sacrifice, we have a potential for making our religion horizontal instead of vertical. Turning religion just into ethics. God's righteousness into some kind of social justice. God's generosity into charitable trusts. What is the opposite to the word godly? If you're a note taker, just write it down. The opposite. What opposite word? The antonym for godly is, write it down. Nearly everybody I ever ask, they always give the same answer, ungodly. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And not English words can do that. I'm still confused of why flammable and inflammable are the same. That one throws me no end. You would have thought an in would do something different to it anyway. But an un to a godly, that sounds pretty safe, doesn't it? Ungodly. But it's not right. That's not the real antonym to The real opposite to godly is godless. So we have actually put an extra O into our godliness. We think that godliness is goodliness, a kind of religious morality. And in so doing, we've left God out of godliness. And worse still, we've put ourselves into the very centre of godliness. This is what I must do so that I will be more goodly. Godliness is not about what we do. It's about what God has done already. The secret is that God has done what we couldn't do. There are not six, six steps to make myself more goodly. It's not about being good. It's not about what I do or have to do. It's all about God and our relationship with him. It's all about God and what he's already done to restore that relationship. Nearly all religious practices, especially faux Christian practices, are about coming together in order to climb up to God. But if you know anything about the gospel, it's about God coming down to rescue us. The, the verticality of Christianity is there, but the vertical dimension of Christianity is God coming down, not us inching our way up by our good works, our morality, our religiosity, our Bible reading, our whatever it might be, to get up there to be acceptable to God. So listen again to the six clues to godliness. He appeared in the flesh, vindicated by the spirits, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now let's think about them one at a time to understand this great mystery, God's great mystery of godliness. The first clue is he appeared in the flesh. Christianity is not about an idea or a philosophy or an ethics or an experience, but about a person, an historical event, something seen, touched, heard, witnessed, Sometimes teenagers ask Christians to show us God as if they would believe if only they could see God for themselves with their own eyes. Well, there's a couple of important answers to give such silly questions that juveniles ask. Firstly is to say, 
if you're in the right place at the right time, you could and would have seen him for yourself with your own eyes. It was Palestine in the first century that he appeared and appeared, reappeared for, to many witnesses. You just happened to be in the wrong country at the wrong time. Secondly, to tell them that seeing is not believing anyway. For many saw him and still didn't believe. They didn't believe because they didn't know what they were looking at. They weren't expecting God to appear in the flesh as a carpenter. The great secret that people were not expecting is that God became a man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so when he became man, most people didn't recognise him as God. They weren't expecting him to appear as a man, let alone this one. I mean, what good thing could come out of Nazareth? And also because they didn't know what kind of man God would be if he became a man. I mean, if he was a Greek, he would have come as a philosopher. If he was a Roman, he would have come as a soldier. If he was a, uh, an Australian, he would have come as a cheating athlete. If he was, there's all kinds of things he might have come as. But if he came as a Jew, what would he come as? A carpenter from Nazareth in Galilee? He looked like any other man. You know, in all the descriptions of Jesus, there's no descriptions of Jesus. You don't know if he's tall, short. You don't know if he had blonde hair, blue eyes, red hair. You had no idea what Jesus looked like. He did extraordinary things. He spoke in an extraordinary way, but he was just like any other man. Strange things happened at the time of his death, but he died as others died who were crucified, giving up his spirit and being buried in a grave. But then God appeared in the flesh. When he rose from the dead, he appeared in the flesh, leaving behind an empty tomb and repeatedly appearing to his disciples, up to 500 on one occasion. And he wasn't a ghost, he wasn't a spirit, but the same man who was crucified just a couple of days beforehand. He met his disciples. He sat down with his disciples. He even said, bring me some fish to show you. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit. I am the man whom you saw crucified. And when doubting Thomas finally saw him, saw the holes in his hands and in his, in his feet and in his side, then Thomas then fell down before him and called him my Lord and my God. But even then, if you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you won't believe if someone comes back from the dead. For you don't know what coming back from the dead means. What's the purpose of it? Why would someone come back from the dead? What is the resurrection about? And because cynicism knows no limits, and worse, has no knowledge, because cynicism knows no limits and has no knowledge, there's always room for doubt. The cynic can doubt all things and all people, even especially if he puts his mind to it, he can doubt himself. And of course, the true cynic has no friends because he doubts everybody and everything. It sounds so intellectually superior to be a cynic. It is, of course, intellectual suicide to be a cynic. So the first 
clue to God's great mystery is that he appeared in the flesh when Jesus rose from the dead. Here's the single most dangerous idea that has ever been told. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to ascend to the right hand of God to rule all the universe forever. Once you grasp that, nothing is ever the same again. So the first clue to God's great mystery is that he appeared in the flesh. The second clue is that he was vindicated by the Spirit. This is what Pentecost was all about. It's not about speaking in tongues, but it's about the risen Lord Jesus pouring out his Spirit onto his people, testifying to all Israel that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus had promised the coming of the Holy Spirit, so the arrival of the Holy Spirit vindicated his claims to be the Christ who would pour out his spirit upon his people, vindicated his claims to be the Lord of heaven and earth. By Jesus pouring out the spirit on God, on his people, he demonstrated that he was indeed the Lord who was sitting at God's right hand. He was indeed the Messiah come in all power and authority. Just turn over back to Romans chapter 1. I referred to it this morning, Romans chapter 1, where you read the gospel of God. Romans 1, Paul, a servant, page 1128. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed Son of God in power, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ and Lord. He appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. And the third clue to God's great mystery is that he was seen by the angels. Christianity is based in history. But it's not only about human history, it's also about the supernatural And the intersection between both the natural and the supernatural worlds. Angels are part of the reality. Whether or not we've seen them or ever met them, they're there. We're told that you can entertain them unawares, which means they don't dress in long gowns, wings and having halos over their head. Because I think if one of them turned up at my place, I would recognise Australians don't generally dress that way. The New Testament teaches that the angels long to know what the prophets were talking about when they spoke of the sufferings and the glories of the Christ, but they didn't know. They didn't understand what the gospel was. The gospel the Old Testament prophesied, the angels, they couldn't understand it. The prophets didn't understand it either. It was the spirit of Christ within them that was speaking this great truth. At his birth, the angels declared the coming of Christ. After his temptation, the angels ministered to him. But it was with the resurrection they saw what it was all about. They were the first, the first to see and bear witness to the empty tomb and the risen Christ. And in his exaltation, he sits at God's right hand, surrounded by the angels of heaven. And the fourth clue to godliness is that he was proclaimed among the nations. 
I mean, we're the heirs of roughly 2,000 years of a world religion, so much so that we take it for granted now that the Messiah was not for the Jews alone. Today, the Jews find it impossible to believe that you could be a Jewish Christian. In the New Testament, they found it impossible that you could be a non-Jewish follower of the Christ, such as the change that has happened. But it was the death and resurrection of the Messiah, of the man who was God, that the religion of the chosen nation Israel became the religion of the whole world. God didn't come into the world to save Israel from Rome, but to save sinners from death and judgment, to save people such as you and me. There's only one God who made all peoples and all nations and there's only one saviour, one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. I'm just quoting back 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you're there, in verses 6 and 7, 5 and 6. But look how he finishes 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all people, this has now been witnessed at the proper time. For he was proclaimed among the nations. And this proclamation to the nations lead to the fifth clue of God's mystery of godliness. Namely, he was believed on in the world. Have you yet seen why we read Ephesians chapter 3? For Ephesians chapter 3 talks about the mystery of God, the mystery of Christ, the mystery that Paul was in prison for. And what was the mystery? It was Christ among the nations, Christ among the Gentiles. Thousands of years between Moses and Jesus. And in those thousands of years, the Jews hadn't yet worked out that the Messiah came for the world. They didn't understand what the prophets were talking about. But once Christ had died and risen again and poured out his spirit vindicating him, into the hearts and minds of the preachers who proclaimed him to the nations of the world he was believed on in the world. And all around the world today, millions and millions of people have come to put their trust in that first century Jewish man. They've given their lives to him, found forgiveness in him, entrusted their eternity to him. Today, more people trust this man than any other person alive or dead, risen from the grave. More people in history trust him as their Lord and Saviour than any other person who has ever lived. Here is the first universal religion, the first missionary religion, the invitation to every man, woman and child to come into relationship with the true and living God and creator of all, breaking down all racial, all ethnic, all cultural, all national divisions and hostilities between people because there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And as he rose from the dead and sends his gospel preachers out with this message for the world, people all over the world, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight and come to him, acknowledging him as Lord and Saviour. This was God's secret plan all along. This is why he chose the Jews, to save the world. 
to bring all the world to acknowledge his son, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which takes us then to the sixth and final clue. He was taken up in glory. For though Jesus was crucified in worldly shame and ignominy, he rose in glory and honour and has ascended to sit at God's right hand in all majesty and power and glory. For now he sits at God's right hand in all the glory, honour and power with all his enemies being placed under his feet as his footstool. And gathered around the throne are all the creatures of the universe and all the kings laying down their crowns before him and thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of people and they're all singing the same new song, You are worthy. How to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nations and you have made them, you've made us to be the kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. This is godliness. And then... They're joined by the myriads, the thousands upon thousands of angels of heaven who are singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Because, my friends, there's nobody else in heaven or on earth to whom you would want to give all honour and wealth and power, and wisdom, and glory, and authority. There's nobody else in heaven and earth whom you could trust with such power, and wealth, and honour. There's no politics, I don't care how politically fanatical you are, there's no leader of any political party anywhere in this world that you would give any power to, except you have to. That's why we have democracy because we want to limit the power of our leaders and we want to have a very clear sign-off date when we can get rid of them. In Australia, we get rid of them regularly. <laughs> ours, ours is an equal opportunity country. Everybody can have a chance of being Prime Minister for a week. And we just turn them over and over and over. Because we don't trust anybody with power. We don't give anybody glory. Anybody honour, and we are very suspicious where they got their wealth from. You see, following Lord Acton, we foolishly think that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, but that's not right. Power does not corrupt. It simply allows corrupt people to exercise their corruption. People are corrupt before they're given power. That's why we don't give them much. That's why we keep taking it back from them whenever we can, because we know they're already corrupt. But a man who is not corrupt, a man who lays down his life for his people, a man who serves his God unswervingly, not my will but your will be done, a man who will go to the cross to save his people, that man is not corrupt. That man you can trust with power and authority. So we trust no other man with the power 
that we give Jesus in glory. So this evening, we have before us the secret of religion. For 1 Timothy 3.16 is God's explanation of his mystery, his secret. His secret of religious piety, his secret of godliness, of the vertical dimension of our Christianity. And his secret is that Jesus appeared in the flesh. God appeared man through his resurrection. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels. He was preached among the nations. He's been believed on in the world and he's up there in glory. This is godliness Christian style. It's not about being good. It's not about getting better. Hey, nothing wrong with being good. And some people I'd like to see get better. But that's nothing to do with Christianity necessarily. That's not what it's about. It's about the supernatural invading the natural. It's about Jesus and his death and resurrection. It's about our redemption, our salvation, our forgiveness, our rebirth. Sadly, sadly for my fellow countrymen, it's still a deep mystery. They just don't get it. They keep thinking we're speaking about being moral, about being good. Although God explained it 2,000 years ago, it's still a deep mystery to those people for they still think they know what God should have said if he didn't say what he should have said. Well, they know better than God. For they think the way to be godly is to be moral and good and goodly. When God's way to godliness is to send his son to die and rise again for our forgiveness and eternity. I don't know England as well as I know Australia. But I do remember some years ago, I came and spoke at a meeting, a men's dinner. And I was speaking on the subject, why good people go to hell and the only people who go to heaven are bad people. And the printer, when we came to pick up the advertisements, he was so pleased. He was really, really pleased. He said, you've made a terrible mistake, but I fixed it for you. <laughs> and sure enough, all his pamphlets said, why good people go to heaven and the only people who go to hell are bad people. Not only did we have to ask him to print them all again, not only did he have to bear the cost of that, but we also invited him to the dinner because he didn't understand. If you don't understand godliness, you don't understand godliness. If you understand what Jesus has done for you, godliness is not about goodliness. Godliness is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And how we come to know him is by admitting our sin and thanking God for godliness and asking God to make us part of his people. Let me close in prayer that way. Heavenly Father, I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't, I don't deserve your gift of eternal life and I'm guilty of rebelling against you, ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Thank you that your message has gone out to the ends of the earth, making clear to us your way of the death and resurrection of your Son. 
please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as king. And we pray it in his name. Amen. You know, if you do pray for forgiveness like that, and you do pray for change like that, come on, come on, and you do pray for change like that, you will be forgiven and you will be changed. Do you know how I know that? It, it's very simple how I know that. Because he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. I know you'll be forgiven and changed because of God, not because of you. <laughs>